opportunity, uh, again, to bring God's word to you uh, in a passage that um, as Dennis and I were talking and he was explaining he wanted to begin doing a series on contentment, uh, I figured my job today is really to make us all discontent so that he can come with the answer uh, in this series. So I'm going to just dwell on all the things that make us discontent and then Dennis can come and save us in the weeks ahead. Um, Again, as I was thinking, you know, what are the things that make us discontent? We live in a culture that breeds discontentment. We live in a culture that surrounds us constantly, bombards us constantly, uh, attacks our contentment by stirring up our hearts for desire of things and people and places. Um, John MacArthur once said, promoting everything from beer to soap, advertisers entice you to buy their product by creating discontentment. If you just buy the fancy car, the elaborate entertainment center, the designer outfit, you'll be satisfied. Say goodbye to boredom. Say farewell to loneliness. Say hello to happiness. In any case, they don't want you to be content with what you have, and not surprisingly, most people aren't. America's incredible influence highlights a major problem with unredeemed man. He can't handle what he produces because he's ultimately and totally selfish. When man's sinful heart is tempted into a selfish attachment to stuff, greed takes over, and self-destruction is the ultimate end. He's not happy without it. He's unsatisfied once he gets it. It's the enigma of materialism. So I want us to look at uh, a passage today that I think Jesus lays out for us, two of the main enemies of our contentment, and that is greed and worry. Uh, and I think we'll see that clearly. Some passages are easy to preach, because they explain themselves. And this is one of those where Jesus just lays out uh, for us very easily. But don't think I'm not going to say a few things uh, anyway about it. But I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. We're going to read verses 13 to 34. And see as we read through if you can see the, uh, the problem and uh, see the solutions that Jesus offers. So hear now the word of God. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life, as to what you will eat, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, they have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life span? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. 
But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have uh, brought us here today to hear from you. And I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts and open our ears, that we will see and understand and then apply these truths into our lives. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Jesus had just been preaching on some of the most solemn and weighty matters. If you look at the first 12 verses there of chapter 12, he's, he's blasting the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites. Uh, he's speaking about the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, he talks about nothing's covered up that won't be revealed. Uh, verse 4, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. After that, they have no more they can do. But instead, fear the one who can cast you into hell. Uh, verse 8, say to everyone who confesses me before the Son, before me, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angel of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Incredible weighty matters. Now sometimes as preachers, we really wonder if you're listening to what we're saying. Uh, because here's a great example. After all of these incredible weighty matters... It says, someone in the crowd yells, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. I mean, where was this guy during the sermon? Uh, Jesus isn't talking about money and stuff and inheritance. He's talking about the, the matters of eternity that are there. And so when the man brings up the problem, when he speaks out uh, and, and interrupts what Jesus is saying, Jesus is going to respond to him in kind. The man was consumed with his problem. Apparently, uh, his brother was in charge of the inheritance, and he didn't feel he was being treated fairly. Now, to give the man some credit, in that culture, you would go to a rabbi to be your uh, mediator, to be the arbitrator if you had a dispute. So maybe he was thinking that's the role of Jesus, but it says there's thousands in this crowd that they're, they're pressing in on each other. They're stepping on one another. There's so many people there, and this guy thinks that <coughs> it's all about him. And so he asks Jesus this question. Actually, he doesn't ask a question. He demands Jesus to do something for him. Jesus responds in, in really an untypical way by being very impersonal and cold when he says, Man, who appointed me a judge over you? Uh, very impersonal. He doesn't say, you know, it's not like just saying, Sir or Mr. Uh, it doesn't address the man in any personal way, but he, he wants to go to the heart of the matter. Verse 15 uh, he, he wants the man to realize that his problem is with greed. His problem is, is that he's not content with where he is, but instead he wants more. And verse 15 becomes the principle, uh, the main principle really throughout this passage. Jesus says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance 
does his life consist of his possessions? What an incredible principle that should speak to us as well, because our American society is built on get more and more and more. The bigger, the better, the shinier, the newer. And if you don't have enough room, rent a, rent a storage space and begin storing it there. Or buy a bigger house. We, we've been caught up in the same thing that this man was caught up in. I want more. I want more. I deserve more. And Jesus says, no, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Again, we live in a culture that has the old saying that he who has the most toys when he dies wins. Uh, and Jesus says, absolutely not. Your life doesn't consist of your possessions. There's something far more important that Jesus wants us to understand. And so as he addresses the man, really rebukes the man, speaks to the entire crowd about the danger of greed and discontentment, he then tells him a parable to illustrate what he's talking about. So the parable is the land of a rich man, very productive. Now, there's nothing wrong with this picture. A rich man, we need to notice that he's already wealthy, and he already has very productive land. Uh, two key things. Jesus doesn't rebuke that, but he says the man, after he had this incredible crop, begins reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and there I can store all my grain and my goods. I want you to notice uh, in that passage the personal pronouns. Eight times he uses the word I, and four times he uses the word my. The man was totally consumed with himself. The man was self-centered. He was selfish. His whole focus was on what can I do for me? All this stuff that's there, it's for me. I'm already wealthy, but I need more. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tear down what I have, which apparently would have been enough to continue to take care of him, but I'm going to build even bigger barns. And there I'm going to store all of my grain and my goods. This is kind of like the first storage unit. It's not only the grain, he's storing all the extra stuff that he has that he's accumulated. And so he wants to build these bigger barns and store all of his stuff. And then I can say, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. So take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, kind of the, the ultimate uh, of just the, the American dream. I want to get enough and raise enough and earn enough and save enough so that at some point in my life I can do nothing. I can sit back and just live off the stuff I've accumulated. Well, what does God say? At, at this point, the God breaks into this man's life and says, you fool. You fool. He's not talking about his uh, intellectual capacity here. Uh, he's talking about a man whose life is not centered around God. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so God addresses him as a fool because he's living his life as if God doesn't exist. He's living his life for himself. I, 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 all the way through. And God says, no, that's a fool's view of life. You need to have God's perspective on life. So the problem with greed that is addressed in this parable is at first greed ignores the lordship of Christ over everything. We've just finished the book of Colossians. And one of the main themes in the book of Colossians was the preeminence of Christ. Jesus Christ is over all things. He is first place in all things. This man didn't have any clue of that. He was the first place in his life. He was the one that was preeminent. The Bible declares the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So God rightfully owns the entire creation, the whole works, even what we have earned and what we have saved. God owns those things. So our, our life is really a life of stewardship, not of ownership. 
God has given us what we have so that we can steward it for him, that we can use it for his glory and for the building up of the kingdom. Appreciate Garrett's enthusiasm about missions and, and what's going on around the world, and thank you that you are a church that supports missions, uh, not only in sending people out, but continuing to pray and uphold those people. Because brothers and sisters, our, our, our brothers and sisters around the world are hurting. Uh, they need our support. They need our prayers. I was teaching in Liberia uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday by Zoom. I wasn't there in person. Um, and, and they're already experiencing the hardships of the world's economic condition. Uh, most of the countries in Eastern Africa have suffered severe drought for years. They don't have enough food. They're beginning to run short. They don't have gasoline and what is coming in they can't afford anymore. And so we have churches, our brothers and sisters, who are literally at a point of starvation. Many of them don't know where their next meal is coming from, and yet they live with a, a contentment in trusting God to be their provider. puts me to shame when I think of their attitude about their situation. But we need to pray, and we need to continue to ask God to provide, and we need to find ways that we might be able to help them as well. But the greedy man is, is a proud man. He's self-sufficient. His confidence is in his many barns, and, and they're full of produce. He's not worried about God caring for him. He thinks he's done it all himself. I don't need God because I've done everything. Second thing we see in, in the story really is, is greed ignores the priority of relationships. Uh, the man and his brother obviously are estranged over money. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times families have been divided or to get angry with one another when they're trying to divide the estate. Uh, you know, I want this and you won't let me have that. And, and, there, and arguments ensue and families break up as a result of that. And, it, and I assume maybe in this case the brother maybe had wronged him. Uh, maybe he did have a legitimate case, but Jesus didn't confront the brother. He confronts the man with his greed. He says, why can't you be content with what you have? Why can't you trust God to provide for you? In this situation, the Bible's clear that our number one priority is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we let money and stuff and things begin to break relationships uh, because of our greed and our discontent, we're being sinful and we're not obeying God. I think thirdly, greed ignores the shortness of life uh, and the fact of eternity. This rich man did what? Now my life is set. I've got many years to live and enjoy all the stuff I've accumulated. He just forgot one fact. He's not in charge of his life. Every day of our life has been ordained before there's yet one of them, it says in Psalm 139. And this man forgot that point. He thought he had many years left. He thought he had, had all kinds of time and he's going to enjoy it. He thought he was being prudent. He had thought matters through. He's going to build these big barns. And yet God bluntly calls him a fool. Again, the, the fool has said in the heart, there is no God. He's acting as if God doesn't exist. He's acting as somehow he's in control of his stuff and his life. He thinks somehow he is going to be in charge of how long he lives and how well he's going to live that life. So each of us has the same choices to make when we think about greed and we think about discontentment. Uh, is, it, is it something that is leaving God out of the picture? Have we become so self-sufficient that we don't really think we need God? Well, I've got it all taken care of. I've got my, my savings. I've got my portfolios. I've got my insurance. I've got my house paid for. I've got my car paid for. I'm just enjoying life. Everything's good. But do we keep eternity in focus? Do we recognize that no matter how much stuff we accumulate, number one, that's not what matters. But number two, we can't take it with us. We said before that you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You cannot take it with you. 
And yet we live as if we do. We live as if somehow we are the ones who can control our destiny and our eternity uh, by the things that we're accumulating here. The world says that we need to consist of things. But God says, no, life consists of being rightly related to him and other people. If we get caught up in the, in the discontent of our society and in the constant advertising that breeds within us, the, uh, the I'm just discontent, I'm restless, I want more, then we're forgetting what God has said about the world. The world might view this rich man as being a success. Uh, he might even be featured in business journals. You know, here's his way of, of doing it, and here's how he accomplished so much, and here's how he turned money back into the business, and here's how he, he developed uh, this system for the good life. And yet God calls him a fool. William Barclay in his commentary says this man's whole attitude is the very reverse of Christianity. Instead of denying himself, he aggressively affirms himself. Instead of finding his happiness in giving, he tried to conserve it by keeping. His goal was to enjoy life, but in seeking his life, he lost it. So what was wrong with the man's focus? He had the world's perspective and not God's perspective. He thought really the things that he was accumulating are what life was all about, and he left God out. So God's perspective, again, isn't saying riches or things are inherently wrong, so please don't misunderstand me. Uh, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. He is the one who supplies everything that we have. So God isn't saying that things in and of themselves are, are evil or wrong or sinful, but we need to keep God's perspective in what we do with the things that God has given to us. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them, that is the rich, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So if we want to be content, if we really want to learn how to be rich towards God, we need to be careful to distinguish between the world's perspective and God's perspective. God has given us things to enjoy and steward, but the world says God, God is out of the picture. We need to get it all ourselves. So do you want to be content? Do you really want to be rich in Jesus? Jesus says and we need to be rich towards God by laying up treasures in heaven. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. So that's the first factor, the, the greed or the discontent that comes from, uh, from the greed. Second major factor, I believe, in our discontent is worry. Now, most of us are prone to worry. I am. Uh, you know, if you, if you don't have enough, we may worry about how we're going to get it. Or if we have some, we worry about how we're going to keep it. Um, if anybody has invested anything in the stock market recently, uh, and you're watching it just go down and down and down, you know, it causes just a little bit of, of anxiety to say, hmm, that's supposed to be what I thought I was going to live on the rest of my life. Wrong perspective, because God is going to provide for that. But Jesus wants us to be free from worry about money and things. And then he gives us another principle, and then he's going to give us another illustration. So verse 22, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life. as what you will eat, nor your body is what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. There's the principle. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about stuff and things and externals. Why? Because God is the one uh, who's going to provide for you. And then he gives some illustrations, three illustrations here. The first one is the ravens. Consider the ravens. Now, in Matthew, he uses uh, sparrows. Uh, Luke has ravens here, and I believe Jesus probably actually used the word raven. Why? Because raven was an unclean bird. 
Ravens were considered the worst of the worst. They were scavengers. Uh, they, they ate things that were dead and rotting and decaying, and they, and they were considered unclean. And Jesus' point is, listen, if God uh, is going to take care of ravens, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't have storerooms, they don't have barns like this man uh, we just talked about, and yet God feeds them. God feeds them. Are you not more valuable than the birds? If you're a child of God, cleaned by the blood of Jesus Christ, do you think God's not going to take care of you when he's willing to feed the unclean bird, the raven? It puts it in a perspective, again, of where is our trust and where is our confidence? Jesus teaches we have to trust in God because he cares for us. If he cares for these animals, if he cares for the birds, he cares for us as well. Now, the Lord is not encouraging a lazy, uh, I don't care attitude either. Uh, ravens are fed, but they have to work. They don't just sit in a nest and God plops worms into their mouth. They're out there working. They're out there flying around. They're out there you know, scavenging what they can find. So God does provide, but he provides through the jobs and through the means he's given us as well. He's not telling us to be lazy. Um, and again, God uh, wants us to know that he is the ultimate provider. They're not sowing. They're not reaping. They're not storing. And yet God is feeding them. So we need to have the attitude of the birds. Uh, I'm going to work. I'm going to continue to do what God has given me to do. I'm going I'm to save what I can and use what I can uh, to provide for my family and to build the kingdom of God. Uh, and he's going to provide for me. So the second illustration then, verse 25. Which of you by worrying can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And the word cubit there could either be uh, a length of time or an a increase in your stature. Uh, if you consider a cubit as 18 inches, I don't know that he's necessarily talking about increasing our stature uh, by 18 inches. I think he's referring to the length of time. How many of us really think by worrying we're going to make our lives longer? In fact, worrying we're making our lives shorter, uh, the health uh, ramifications of worry. So which of you by worrying can add a single hour to your lifespan? If you can't even do a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Now, if we, do we really think that worry is going to accomplish something? Uh, do we really think that if I worry about it, it's going to change it? If I worry about it, it's going to, to somehow make my life better, make my life longer? Um, and Jesus reminds us, no, worry doesn't do any good anyway. You can't change your, your lifespan. That's already been determined by God. Someone said it's been estimated that, and again, love statistics, right? Uh, it's been estimated that 40% of our worries are about things that never happen. 30% of our worries concern things that are past that can't be changed. 12% of our worries are needless worries about our health. 10% are petty, miscellaneous worries. And only 8% deal with legitimate issues. Now, I don't know who came up with that. They were probably worried about getting the statistics right. But I think, again, it's not wrong to think about things. It's not wrong to try to think, change the things that we can. But let's be honest. Most of the things that I worry about and you worry about are things we have no control over. Uh, that's where more than, than ever we need to trust that the Lord will take care of us. And then the third illustration he gives is about the lilies in the field. Uh, he goes on, verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? Now, the word lilies there doesn't necessarily mean the day lilies and things that we see around here. 
Uh, it's more like just the fields of wildflowers that were there. Uh, used to love to hike in the mountains of Colorado, and there's nothing better when you come up a, a, a view, and all of a sudden there's a field of wildflowers up in the alpine tundra. Just breath, breathtaking, spectacular view. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Solomon, in his best day, couldn't look as good as what God has produced in these little flowers that are up there. Uh, again, if, if we think somehow worry is going to make things better in our lives, we're misunderstanding. Look at the beauty that surrounds us, the way God cares for these, these flowers, the, God, the way God cares for these animals, the way God has cared for you. And worry's not going to change one little thing. And that's why Jesus' rebuke, O men of little faith, hits the heart of worry. Now, worry really is a lack of faith in God. Worry is saying, I don't believe that God is truly going to care for me. I don't believe God truly loves me. I don't believe that God's really going to take care of my needs. Therefore, it's up to me. And worry is really living a lack of faith in God. Uh, Jesus talking to believers, again, the disciples who have gathered. Uh, they've trusted God with their eternal destiny, supposedly. But now they're struggling with trusting him in the day-to-day -day necessities of life. If God did the greatest thing he could do in saving us and bringing us to Christ and forgiving us of our sin, adopting us as children, promising us heaven for all eternity, can we not trust him for the day-to-day -day needs of our life as well? Uh, the greater to the lesser, the argument is there. So the worst thing about worry is that it dishonors our loving Heavenly Father. Uh, Jesus' uh, words to us, again, remind us that our worries about money and, and what we're going to wear and what we're going to eat are insignificant. Instead, we need to trust in the God who cares for us uh, because he is our loving Heavenly Father. Then he goes on in verses 29 to 34 to, to lay out some application for us. Uh, how can we solve our worries then? Uh, and he says we need to learn to seek God's kingdom above our own needs. So he says, uh, and don't seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and don't keep worrying because all the nations, again in Matthew he says the Gentiles, the pagans, uh, all the nations of the world eagerly seek all of those things. What? What you eat, what you wear, what, what you're going to store up. Uh, that's what the Gentiles, the pagans, the nations are eagerly seeking. But your father knows that you need these things. Don't, don't miss that verse. God already knows your needs. God already understands exactly what you need in your life, whether it's food or clothing, whether it's money, whatever it is, God already knows. In fact, it's not God, but your Father, your Heavenly Father knows that you need these things. What a calm assurance to realize in the midst of whatever we might be facing, our Heavenly Father already knows what I need. He already knows the answer uh, to the problem that I'm facing. But instead, seek His kingdom. Again, Matthew, seek first his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. If we put our focus on the things of God, if we put our focus on the kingdom of God, if we seek first those things, God promises he's going he's to take care of the others. Again, the greater to the lesser. We seek the greater things of the kingdom of God. He provides the lesser things that we need in our life. Don't seek for the things that Gentiles seek after. Don't be satisfied with a life that looks like a pagan. We're different people. We're children of the king. We need to, to live as if he truly is our heavenly father. And we seek his kingdom because he will take care of our basic needs. So first there's the command, seek the kingdom. And then the assurance that God will provide for our needs because he knows that we need these things. And so what is the response or what is the application here? First, don't be afraid, little flock. Don't be afraid. 
How many times do we see that in Scripture? Fear not, fear not. Don't be afraid, little flock. Kind of a maybe a put down, uh, calling us a little flock. Uh, we know that, that Jesus uses sheep often as an example of people that aren't too intelligent, that we tend to rebel, wander off, and get in trouble. So don't be afraid, little flock. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Think about that. God wants to give you the kingdom of God. God wants to give you everything that he has already put in place. Jesus Christ already sits on the throne in heaven. He is already ruling and reigning, and one day he will come back and establish his earthly rule. He's already given you the kingdom. God wants to give you the kingdom. God wants you to rule and reign with Jesus. So why are we worried about stuff? We are the co-regents with Jesus Christ uh, in ruling and reigning over the kingdom of God. So what is the answer? Verse 33, sell your possessions. Whoa, wait a minute. I was okay up to that point. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Now, I, I don't believe Jesus is saying that every one of us needs to sell everything that we have. Uh, God has provided those things for us for our benefit, for our use, for our, our uh, enjoyment. But he's also given us those things to be generous and willing to share and take care of the needs of other people. So he says, so sell your possessions. Maybe you need to sell some of them. Maybe you need to get rid of some of the stuff that's in that storage unit that you don't even know what's in there anymore. Sell those things. Give the money to the poor. Give it to charity. And then make yourselves money belts which won't wear out. Uh, how do you do that? Well, he says, by uh, storing your treasure in heaven, where no thief will steal it and no moth will destroy it. Uh, that's how we build money belts that will never wear out. Because we have a kingdom focus. Jesus' point is, if you want your heart in the things of God, put your treasure in the kingdom of God. Why? Because where your heart is, excuse me, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We tend to, to reverse that. We think, well, where my treasure is, that's where my affections and my heart's going to be. And Jesus says, no, just the opposite. Where your treasure is, that draws your heart into it. If, you're, if your treasure is on earth, it draws your heart to the earth. If your treasure is in heaven, it's going to draw your heart into heaven. Put your treasure in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of man. All right, so I want you to think about your life right now. Again, I said I wanted to stir up discontent so Dennis has a chance to save you next week. Uh, let me give you uh, five questions to ask yourself. <coughs> this is kind of the discontentment test. Number one, do my thoughts more often run after material things than after God himself? If I'm often thinking about the new car, the nicer house, the better clothes, and I seldom think about how I can know God better, then I am discontent and tainted by greed. Number two, do I ever compromise godly character in the pursuit of material gain? Do I sometimes lie, cheat, or steal to get ahead financially and to avoid loss? If I'm willing to shred relationships or to take advantage of another person for financial gain, I'm being greedy and discontent. If I care more about making money than about being a witness for Jesus Christ, I'm being greedy and discontent. Starting to hurt yet? Number three, do I enjoy material things more than I enjoy knowing God? If my happiness soars when I get the new car, but I'm bored by the things of God, I am greedy and discontent. If I would rejoice when I win a raffle or a door prize, but I yawn when I hear about a soul being saved, I'm greedy and discontent. Number four, how do I respond when I lose material things? 
When the stock market drops as it is, do I fall apart emotionally like I sometimes do? If I would get robbed or lose some of or all of my things in a fire or a tornado or a storm, does that devastate me? Again, I'm not saying we need to be stoic about our losses. They're, they're, they're real. But we always feel some sadness when we lose things. But if that wipes us out, if the loss of things uh, suddenly just tears us apart emotionally, we're probably too attached to this world and its goods. And number five, what would I do if I suddenly came into a fortune? Now, distant relative dies and leaves an inheritance. Jesus, make him divide it up. Would your first thought be, now I can get the better house or the car or the boat? Now I can take that trip around the world I've always wanted to take? Or would you be thinking, now I can support dozens of missionaries? Now I can begin to help spread the gospel around the world. Now I can help my brothers and sisters who don't even have food on their table. Thousands of people can hear about Christ because he's given me funds to invest in the spread of his kingdom. You see, stewardship frees us from worry. It frees us into a life of contentment. It frees us to give away things because things don't matter. The kingdom of God is what matters. So Jesus is saying, don't worry about money. Don't worry about things. Trust in the God who cares for you. Seek his kingdom above your own needs, and the Father will be glorified, and you will have the unfailing treasures in heaven. So again, let me conclude with just a couple of principles. Let's point them out again. Number one, your view of the future will determine your present conduct. If you really believe that you are going to die tomorrow, would you do anything different today? By the same token, what are you doing today that reflects the truth that you will one day stand before the judge of the universe? We have a principle that we have an eternity waiting. And as Dennis shared that rope illustration, we are a speck on the back of a flea on the, the line of eternity. Our life is nothing and yet, we put so much emphasis on the now. Have we forgotten that our view of the future, that I will one day spend eternity in the presence of my God and my King and worship at the throne of my Savior, does that really make a difference in the way you live your life now? Secondly, if, if, if your view of what is most important in life uh, is crucial to how you're going to live your life, your view of what's most important, so what are your priorities? What's the one thing that you are careful to make first place in your life no matter what? Is that Jesus? Does Jesus have the place of preeminence in your heart and in your mind and in your actions? Or has something else crept in and is sitting on the throne that only Jesus deserves? Your view of what's most important in life is crucial to how you're going to live your life now. The principle here, you need to make the first thing the first thing. You need to keep Jesus as preeminent in your life. And finally, life does not consist in material possessions. It's not what you have that's important, but whose you are that is eternally significant. So brothers and sisters, let, let's examine our hearts, examine our lives, examine our stuff. Uh, have we been caught up in greed and discontent? Uh, because if we have, Dennis is going to solve that for us in the weeks ahead. So let's pray as we close today. Father, this is a, a, just a wonderful passage, but it's hard too. Because it strikes us where a lot of us live our lives. We, uh, we're really not content with the way things are going. We desire more and more and bigger and better and shinier and newer. And, and somehow the things that we have now just aren't enough. And on the other hand, that some of us worry 
we worry greatly about, am I going to have enough? Am I going to get what I need? And, and both of those show a lack of trust in you. You are our loving, gracious, heavenly Father. You know what we need. You have gladly given us the entire kingdom. Will you not take care of our daily needs as well? So help us to live in light of eternity, trusting that you will take care of us today so that you will receive the honor and the glory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.